0: Check Me Out is a production of Panhandle PBS and Amarillo College's FM90 and is recorded at AC's Washington Street Campus. Someone had told me uh, when I started out writing true crime, that it's like writing a book when everyone is lying to you. And it's not everyone that lies to you, but there's a lot of people that lie to you. And that a big part of that is um, the killer. Uh, So if you interview killers, you have to expect them to shape the facts and the evidence to best like fit a position where everyone else is the bad person and they're the victim you will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this
1: welcome to check me out a podcast for book lovers i'm amy hart this episode we're going off the page with new york times best-selling author Shanna Hogan. She has appeared on Dateline NBC, ABC's 2020, CNN's Anderson Cooper 360, Inside Edition, Oxygen's Snapped, Jane Velez Mitchell, and HLN's Dr. Drew On Call, just to name a few. Uh, She was awarded the 2009 Journalist of the Year by the Arizona Press Club and the 2011 Journalist of the Year by the Arizona Newspaper Association. Her latest book, Secrets of a Marine's Wife, A True Story of Marriage, Obsession, and Murder, is out now. It is my pleasure to introduce the lovely Shanna Hogan. How are you?
0: Great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with
1: you. I want to talk to you about writing. Uh, we are featuring writers as part of our podcast this season, and it's something we just, we, we love talking to authors and, you know, kind of picking your brain a little bit. First off, I'd like to say uh, you have ties to the Amarillo area, correct?
0: Absolutely. My entire family lives in Amarillo. And I used to visit there the entire summer, every summer when I was growing up, until uh, like around sixteen or so, and then I then I stopped. But it was something that was really a big part of my childhood growing up. And I actually used to work with
1: your aunt. I met her. I mean, I had been working with her, but then I didn't realize the tie to you until the Jodi Arias trial. And I was obsessively watching the trial every single day. Just happened to see you on TV every single night. So uh, she said, you've probably (laughs) seen my niece. She's been uh, on Dr. Drew. And and I was like, who is it? Well, Shanna Hogan. And then all clicked into place that her last name was also Hogan. It's been a really cool experience, like getting to know you. We're kind of social media buddies. So that's It's always fun to finally, you know, get to talk to somebody. So the reason why I wanted to have you on mainly uh, is because I am a huge fan of your books. So I wanted to talk about uh, the novels that you have written. You do true crime. I mean, is that what you call it? It's just true crime? Yeah.
0: No, it's not actually called novels. They're called books because it's not um, fiction, actually. So it's all true. Like, every detail I write about is true which is an interesting part of the writing process. Like when you talk to other authors who are making stuff up in their minds, I'm completely relying on the facts and like what happens to put together a narrative that actually becomes an entertaining read. You have written
1: four books. I just want to tell you, I've read all of these. I have equally loved all of them. Uh, I think I really did. I've loved every single one of them. Uh, The latest book that you just wrote, I flew through that thing in just a couple of days. I couldn't put it down. They read like a, a mystery novel. So if you, you know, if you're kind of like, I know some people are leery of reading true crime because it might be too gruesome or something like that. But you do a great job of being very respectful of the victim of the crime. I think they're just so fascinating to read. But you, you are a very, very good writer.
0: Thank you so much. That means a ton to me. And you know, I work really hard at being um, at, at the writing process. A lot of true crime books. You know, the genre got watered down for a little while because there were some books in the genre that were not really well written and they would just, you know, read like a newspaper article or, you know, include trial transcripts. And I tried to take that and, um, you know, some of my favorite authors like Ann Rule and Catherine Casey, who's in Texas, who covers Texas cases and, you know, focus on the writing style and presenting these as they unfold to the reader like a novel would, you know, capturing all those details and the sadness and stuff from the family members that I talked to, but still making it captivating for readers. So I really appreciate that, that it's actually coming through.
1: How do you decide what story you're going to chase after?
0: Is it just a feeling that you have? Sometimes this last one was just a feeling. I had just finished my third book on um, this Utah case with this Dr. Martin McNeil who had drowned, uh, drugged his, his wife, convinced her to get plastic surgery, drugged her with medication and drowned her in the bathtub. And then, um, I was just finishing up that book and I heard from, I heard about the case of Erin Corwin missing in 29 Palm, California. she lived on the Marine base with her husband, John. She had gone out uh, to scout locations for an upcoming trip with her mom to Joshua Tree National Park and never came back. And I just started following the case as I, you know, I'm Kind of a news junkie. I keep these alerts on my phone and, you know, following it and hoping she would be found. And just as the twists and turns kept rolling into the story, I was like, this is a book and this should be a book. And I wanted to be the one who wrote it. But in other cases, um, like my fifth book is something that was been assigned to me um, by my publisher that they hire me to do. So sometimes it's I'm picking cases and sometimes it's my publisher saying, hey, I think this would be a good case for Shanna to write. So I've picked three of my books and, and two of them have been assigned to me.
1: Obviously, we kind of touched on Jody Arias. That's, I mean, I know that was a, a huge book for you, but you were at the trial pretty much the entire yeah. time, correct?
0: I spent five months in the courtroom with the, the other producers. It was such a surreal experience, um, you know, covering that case. I'd written about it for like two years before it went to trial. And because I had done such pre-reporting on it and had written articles on it, I got a lot of contacts from the other media outlets that had been there to attend the trial. So that's how I ended up being kind of pre-promoting the book on all these different shows that were covering it. Because they didn't send, a lot of them didn't send a local correspondent. Instead, they would send me or they would have me in the courtroom and then giving my thoughts on the trial after. So it was really fascinating watching you know the case unfold over, the, over five months. I remember very clearly being in the courtroom with the producers and some you know writers and television reporters on one side of the courtroom on the other and right we're right in front of the row with with Travis's family his sister and um you know his 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 close friends and then right on the other side of the courtroom is Jody and behind her is uh, first few rows were her mom and her aunt and a couple family members and then just rows and rows of people who had lined up outside the courtroom, you know, since midnight, hoping to get a glimpse of, of Jody and just to sit in the courtroom for a few minutes. It was such a phenomenon. By the end of the trial, the day that it was announced the verdict, I, I pulled up to the courtroom and you know, started to walk in. And it was like the O.J. Simpson or Michael Jackson verdict, where it's outside the courtroom, just so many people like standing around cameras everywhere and it was just a very, like I said, surreal experience to be part of that.
1: And I know that you, um, you know, not even just in the trial, I mean, because obviously you're sitting near Travis's family, you're seeing some of Jody's, you know, people that are there to support her as well. But I know that you've probably, obviously you've spoken to a lot of his friends and family members through writing your book. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, their, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like to go through a five month trial. Uh, after mm-hmm. losing somebody I love, you know, uh, were they, th- did the, did the trial make them feel better? Does it help them in any way? I mean, is it just exhausting to go through?
0: I think that's what, that's more than anything. It's exhausting. You know, it's also really uncomfortable, especially in the beginning. You know, like I said, here you are in the courtroom with um, Jody right there and her family on the other side. It becomes like sadly, tragically routine attending that every single day, you know, being there and going to the courtroom every single day becomes just part of like, you know, your, your daily activity. And, you know, the tension and the sadness is so clear in the room, but um, it, it, you know, the whole um, formulaic nature of a trial ends up overwhelming the situation. And it just kind of becomes like, you know, let's get through this. I think at the end, you know, having that satisfying verdict was relieving. It helps them move on. I know all the sisters that I met throughout the trial afterwards, they were like, okay, we're stepping back to our normal lives now. I'm still friends with some of them on Facebook. and They just didn't want to be involved anymore. It was just an overwhelming undertaking. And they still, a lot of them still haven't, you know, really talked to the media because it's just something we wanted to move past and move on with their lives.
1: Well, and and this was a particularly salacious trial. So you had some very exposing things about travis coming out during this trial and i'm sure that was not easy for them and to see the horrific nature of this crime replayed over and over throughout the trial
0: oh my gosh i've never seen a trial like that where and i've been to trials before where the very first day of the trial not only was the the super graphic photos of travis's body shown in court but also the sexual photos of jody in his bed on the day that the last day that he was known to be alive, and so I mean, literally close-ups of her genitals in on the, the big screen in the courtroom on the very first day of trial. Um, then you know later on the sex phone call between the two of them, it just was shockingly salacious. And you know, I didn't even getting into it and, and signing up to write the book. I did not know it would have the, so much like that involved. I still would have written the book. I was still very fascinated with it, of course, but I, it wasn't something that I was super prepared for when I stepped into the trial. And I remember the first day as the prosecutor laid down those crime scene photos of Travis, I like had a visceral visceral reaction and, um, like I felt the blood drain from my face and I, you know, I, I put my head down. It was hard to look at. So it was emotional. It was intense. And, you know, like you said, for those, all those parts of it, there were witnesses who were prepared, who had been prepared for by the prosecutor, Juan Martinez, And then there were sometimes when he used their naivety on the stand as a, a point of, of effect in the trial. I know his ex-girlfriend, who was a virgin, the prosecutor at one point um, was using photos and like, this is the way you remember Travis. And then, is this the way you remember Travis? Mm. And slapped down those photos and you could see like her face went white and she like looked away and it was just very emotional. So, you know, it had almost every component of like what you would think a trial would have like that. And at the same time, there were parts of it that were extremely slow. There were the prosecution, and the defense were arguing constantly. So they would go up to the bench and they would play this like noise machine that would cancel out their, their, you know, their voices. So you couldn't hear what was going on. And sometimes that would happen for more than an hour of the day, you know, spread apart throughout the, the process. So, there, you know, as, as crazy as it was, it was still, you know, a procedural thing. And so it was like juxtaposing all those sensational moments that are still captured in my brain with all the times we were just sitting there, um, you know, waiting for them to resume questioning.
1: And then you would leave the courtroom and go be on TV the rest of the evening. So I'm sure it was a long, grueling process for you in a lot of ways.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Then every almost every night I would go down they had these live trucks that, you know, came from New York and California that were parked outside of the courtroom every day and they would you would sit inside of the, the truck and it would have like a background and you would be hooked to a microphone and speaker in your ear and then you would, you know, wait for them to call your your name and at the beginning I was super nervous about doing that. I had never done live like that before can't see what's going on on the show but you can hear it and so I would wait for them to say Shanna Hogan you know author of Picture Perfect what's your take on x y or z and I would um I joked that I I did tv like I played sports in high school which is I sat there and waited for the ball to come to me and hoped it wouldn't Uh, (laughs) I like I kind of just didn't want it to happen, you know be called out sometimes but you know I I got better at it as I went along and Um, became smoother and that's helped me today because I have to do a lot more TV stuff today with other, you know, books and stuff like that. So I've improved. So every day, not only was I doing that, I was taking notes throughout the entire trial and then I was working on the book sometimes during the lunch portion or during the trial and then I was doing TV after the trial ended for the day and then I was going home and writing the stuff I had taken from notes into scenes in the book. So I had finished the book, turned it in two weeks after the trial ended, and it went to print. Um, there's a, like a pretty lengthy editing process that they that they zoomed up for my, my book uh, because it became such a big trial. And so it was released like four or five months after the trial ended, I think. Um, and, but it, it was something that like I had already written all the background of. So I was writing the rest of it while I was you know in the courtroom and, and at home at night. So it it was a a very consuming five months. And I was still trying to work a regular job at that point, but um, that wasn't really working out very much.
1: (laughs) Wow. Wow. So it sounds like a very stressful time for you.
0: Absolutely. Um, But it was, you know, journalistically, it was exciting in retrospect. And, um, you know, it felt like I was doing something meaningful and something that a lot of people would read. And so I was really proud of the book I finished afterwards.
1: Did you originally start out with the idea that you would... I mean, were you just, did you just start out as a journalist and writing articles and things like that? Did you foresee that you were going to write books?
0: Uh, I actually always wanted to write books. Um, When I, when I was in college and I decided to get into journalism, it was because I wanted to eventually write books and I thought I wasn't good enough of a writer then. And how would I become a better writer? I would need to write every single day. And so um, I got into journalism writing articles with the intention of doing that for several years and going, trying to eventually write books. I thought the author lifestyle was like the greatest lifestyle and it it is actually, it's pretty great. And, uh, I wanted to cover things. I, when I was in college, I liked, um, I didn't like TV journalism as much because you only got to scratch the surface on a lot of stuff. And I wanted to be the one who covered the full story from beginning to end. So I knew I wanted to write books, but I had no idea I would ever write true crime. I, um, I thought that I would, you know, write articles for a while and then find and then maybe, you know, go into writing novels or fiction or something like that. And then true crime kind of fell into my lap. I was into, you know, into shows like Dateline and um, Investigation ID and watching all that stuff. And so I looked for cases when I was just a, a magazine writer that had happened in my own backyard. And that's how I found my very first book is just by writing an article in the case. And when I met with the detective on that story, he was like, this the story is so crazy. It needs to be a book. And as I was digging into the police report and talking to people, I was like, this really does need to be a book. So I spent like an entire um, summer plus another four or five months reading a bunch of books on how to get a book proposal, how to write a, uh, a book proposal, how to get a literary agent, um, you know, the literary agent guide and, you know, doing everything I could. And by the end of it, I had a 50 page book proposal on this case, and I sent it out to literary agents and signed with the one I am currently signed with, Charlene Martin of Martin Literary Ma- Management. She got me two offers in six days on my first book, which is unheard of, and um, I signed with St. Martin's Press, which is who I currently um, work for, and they've been great. They're the ones who just sent me to New York to do Dr. Oz show for my new book. They are the one who are publishing uh, my fifth book as well.
1: Let's talk about your first book. So it uh, is called Dancing with Death. It is literally, it starts with the story of uh, a, a torso being found in a barrel out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. That's in a Rubbermaid
0: container, like you get at Lowe's.
1: Okay. And uh, yeah. it, it's literally, I mean, here's the title Dancing with Death, the true story of a glamorous showgirl, her wealthy husband, and a horrifying murder. So you start with a dismembered torso. And we go from there. So that's yeah. to the kind of books that you're writing now are, are, are uh, you know, they, they start with usually the body and mm-hmm. then it's filling in everything as to how it got there. Uh, but I, yeah. from from page one, I was like, well, I'm hooked. Uh, so, <laughs> and and you just, the way that you write is just fantastic. Um, so so after you wrote that book, I mean, did you get a lot of publicity on on that one?
0: Not really. I mean, it, it just kind of, um, you know, it came out, I got good reviews. It was, you know, a uh, mass market paperback. You know, it was something that, you know, I was really proud of and I worked really hard on. They liked it at the publisher and it was well-written. But for the most part, it, you know, it just came out as another paperback in the true crime section. It didn't really take off until the Jodi Arias case. And then people, you know, started seeing me, you know, talking about the Jodi Arias case. And so they wanted to read my first book and they did. And then that sold out, of its print run and it's been sold out ever since um, the Jodi Arias trial. So you can only get it um, a used copy or at the library or on Kindle. But yeah, it's been sold out for quite a while. And then after that, and after Jodi Arias, my book started getting put into hardback. And so then I got a lot more publicity. I
1: want to kind of circle back to, uh, you know, Jodi's case. And I know one person that you have been, Kind of, you know, vocal about, I guess, on social media that you have sang his praises. Where a lot of people are like, "Why are oh, yeah. you talking about this person?" Uh, is Kirk nurmi who was actually Jody's lawyer during the trial, and a lot of people, for some reason, people just absolutely hated this guy. And you've talked about how he's actually a really good guy, and uh, I think he has a new book out as well. Correct?
0: Um. Yeah. Well- um, I didn't really like him during the trial either. So I get why people didn't like him. You know, he was presenting this sleazy defense about, you know, Travis being a child molester. It was disgusting. I, um, I, I was completely repulsed by it. And I wrote about it in the book. Then later on, he wrote his own book where he talked about how he was forced to be on the trial because of the legal process. He tried to withdraw him numerous times and tried to get out of that case. And then afterwards found out he had cancer and thought he was going to die. So then he wrote, he decided to write a book because his legacy was going to be spending this horrible woman who he hated more than anyone hated more than any of the people in the courtroom who like, you know, despised her. And so he wrote that book and it ended up getting him disbarred. And so I was working doing freelance for like an alternative weekly in Arizona. And I pitched it to my editor of, you know, of getting to know him uh, or, you know, writing an article about how this destroyed his life. And he was like, that's a great article. That's a great idea. And, you know, kind of know more about it than anyone uh, because of, you know, writing the book. So I reached out to him. And when I first did, he's like, I don't think I want to talk to you. You said some horrible (laughs) things about me (laughs) Uh, on television shows. And I was like, maybe, um, and I said, well, like, let like meet with me. And like, let me see. I said, I said a lot of things on TV. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, I I don't know what necessarily what they were, but, uh, I'll give you a fair shot. Like, like, let me get to know your side of it. So I read his book and I met with him in person and learned, you know, his side of the story. And I don't think most people do know his side of the story. I have actually become kind of a friend and, um, you know in the, like professional circles and I actually felt really sympathetic towards him and he's kind of changed his life around since the cancer and has tried to you know do a motivational speaking um, business and um, you know with, with varied success but I got, took a lot of heat for that post um, posting you know defending him uh, but I decided to leave it I asked him if he wanted me to leave it up because it was getting such na- negative feedback but um, he said I think it's doing more good than bad and so I decided I would take any of the negative heat and, you know, the lost followers and then keep it up because I got to know the real guy and he's not what people think he is. And I'm not just going to go with the, with the mass, the crowd and, you know, rail against the person who I, who I objectively didn't know anything about when I said maybe bad things about and, you know, uh, have found out that that's not necessarily true.
1: So as a person who watched the trial almost every day, I, I'm absolutely in that boat of my goodness. He was just a terrible, he's a Saul Goodman type, you know, defender. Mm -hmm. And after I read your post, I was very intrigued. I'm absolutely going to read his book. I would love to give him a chance. I think. Um, you know, I do think he was caught in a bad situation and I think sometimes you, you're trying to just do your job and do the best that you can. It doesn't mean that you yourself are a bad person. Um, I think he was just caught up in it and I would love to read his book.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that, um, defense attorneys are like, put. I mean, I, you know, his, his female defense attorney didn't take as much heat as he did for that defense. And it wasn't him coming up with that defense. You actually do have to you know, let your client speak about what, you know, their side of the story is. The same thing just happened in my latest book, I, I, you know, um, with the secrets of Marine's wife, the defense attorney. Um, he wasn't necessarily as passionate about defending his client or, you know, because he wasn't he up for the death penalty. But Jody Arias was. And so Kirk Nermy's only um, thing was that he was going to save her life. He doesn't believe in the death penalty. He was going to try and save her life. And by putting on the defense that she wanted, even though he thought it would turn off the jury and it would be distasteful. And so, you know, he let her pursue her defense and it did come across as very slimy and sleazy. And I felt the same way during the trial. Um, But afterwards, learning that he hated Jody more than anyone and um, felt like in this impossible position and just a normal, nice guy who lives in, you know, um, East Valley, Arizona with his wife and his two chihuahuas and running marathons and just trying to be a better person. um, You know, I feel like, I feel like some people should give them the benefit of the doubt.
1: One of the things I want to know about, I know that when you're writing these books, you obviously interview the victims, friends, and family. You usually interview uh, people associated with the murderer as well. Sometimes the murderer themselves. Did you talk to Jodi? Did you interview her?
0: I did not interview Jodi personally. But I had communicated with her in prison. Um, you know, I wanted to early on. Um, she had done mm. these media interviews, and I was hoping to get one. You know, I interviewed my first killer in my first book, and it was, um, it, you know, I think it really enhanced the book and gave her her perspective. And, um, and so I, w- I reached out to Jody early on and started sending her postcards telling her I was going to write the book. And she asked for a copy of my first book. I sent that to her and knowing that that would probably do my chances because I was not very nice to the killer in my first book mm-hmm. after she opened up to me. And then um, what ended up happening is Jody, um, she didn't speak to anyone throughout the like after she got different lawyers, she didn't speak to anyone for a really long time. And then um, during the trial, when the publicity blew up, everyone wanted to talk to her. And at the end, Sheriff Joe um, Arpaio of the Maricopa County Jail System. He um, permitted her to do like a one day thing where she could interview for five to 10 minutes with different media outlets. And then he cut off all interviews. And then she went to the state prison where media interviews are no longer allowed. So there was a small window and she had spoke on the stand for 18 days for I had 100,000 words worth of notes um, on just her interview on her days on the stand. And so I felt like I I accurately portrayed her side of the story. And that wasn't going to get much from a five minute interview. So I didn't end up interviewing with her personally, but I know she has read my book. And did you get any feedback on that from her? No, I just heard from her, um, a new lawyer that, you know, she disputes uh, She disputes some things, but thought I gave her a fair shake, I guess.
1: Which is to be expected from her. Yeah, <laughs> so, from a killer. Yeah. Um, and so for those of us that work in an office and, and have like you know, these very vanilla jobs. What is it like to interview someone that's killed someone and has been convicted of killing someone?
0: It's really scary in the beginning. Um, And I've I've gone on to interview lots of other killers that I haven't written books about, um, including the baseline serial killer in Arizona who had killed nine people who holds the record for killing the most amount of people as a serial killer in Arizona. And I sat in a cell with him for like six hours interviewing him personally and then I interviewed Marjorie Orbins for my first book. And, um, you know, always I'm hoping to get the killer to talk. Um, but, you know, it's up to them. And so uh, it's scary. It's um, exciting as a journalist to be in there. You always find it always takes a different turn than you would think it would take. You learn things that you didn't think you would. And I kind of go into it, you know, letting them tell their story and not being confrontational and then going back and, still asking the tough questions, but letting them talk and, and tell what their version of events are and then using that material, you know, properly explain their life and their background and what led up to all this and giving them a fair shake on all that, but not, you know, not letting them off the hook either and showing how the evidence contradicts a lot of the stuff that they say. Someone had told me uh, when I started out writing true crime, that it's like writing a book when everyone is lying to you, and it's not everyone that lies to you but there's a lot of people that lie to you and that well, a big part of that is um, the killer. Uh, so if you interview killers you have to expect them to shape the facts and the evidence to best like, fit a position where everyone else is the bad person and they're the victim and, and, and it's like a phenomenon and every single killer I've read about uh, who's interviewed and who I've, who I've interviewed personally it's always they are the victim and how how their circumstances ended up that, you know, they're in jail now or in prison and um, and how they didn't get a fair shake. It's very fascinating, the psychological phenomenon that goes on for killers. In yeah,
1: it absolutely is. Uh I think that's one of the things that draws me to true crime so much is not only, you know, hearing about the victims and actually bringing them to life, which is one of the things you're really good at doing. You know, you, you tell about their lives in such a way that you really just, you fall for these people and you understand um, a lot better of what their family is going through. But I also like the psychological side of it because it's like, you know, those of us who are normal people who've never killed anybody and don't want to, it's, it's like, what will drive you to, to those extremes? And I, I just love how you, you know, how you can kind of get that information out of people, but you're right. I know it comes with lying and they want it to be their way, obviously, because that's probably why they're killing people. They want things their own way. You know,
0: you and I are in a very similar mindset onto that because what draws me to your crime and even, you know, I'm not really into um, the serial killers as much as I am the relationship murders. I'm very fascinated with what happens between two people that goes from from love, from, you know, meaning to love, to hate, to murder, like what the psychological things that go on in that relationship that lead, you know, someone to commit the most horrific act in the world. You know, I'm, I'm big on capturing, you know, the emotions of, the family members and bringing the victims alive because I feel like that's what gives the story um, some worth and value of, you know, showing who these people were in their lives because they didn't have a chance to write their own ending of their story. But I'm drawn to these murders that, you know, occur between two people where there was like a strong bond at some point and how that devolved and like exploring how, you know, that relationship between two people can, you know, go to those such extremes in like sometimes a short amount of period of time. With like my my third book, it was a thirty-year marriage uh, and how unraveled. Um, you know, with Jody, it was like a year and a half, or maybe two years, from the date she met Travis to the date she decided to murder him. And you know how that happened is very fascinating to me. And digging into those relationships. And so those are the details I really like to capture when I write through crime.
1: In your latest book, uh, "The Secrets of the Marine's Wife," uh, you, I think Erin's probably the youngest of all of yeah. the victims that you have written about. And I think that was the most shocking part for me. She was super young, uh, newly married, and what a what a weird twist that her life went down. I mean, it was just a weird path.
0: Yeah, and she knew him for less than a year. That um, whole thing unraveled in less than a year. And I had um, never really, like I realized early on when I started talking to Aaron's mom, that I had actually never had the chance to tell someone's life story from the very beginning for whatever reason on my other books, either the mother of the victim was, uh, they were all dead or had, um, you know, uh, they were really elderly at that point. Jay Orban's mom was, was elderly and didn't want to talk to the media. Michelle McNeil's mom died shortly after Michelle. And she was in the, um, an, uh, an elder an old folks home at the time that she passed at the time that Michelle passed. And then, you know, Travis Alexander's parents were dead. So You know, a mother is a person who has, like, the entire record of someone's life. And so I I was able to sit down and talk with her, you know, for hours and hours at a time and put together this girl's life story from the very beginning. And I thought that was pretty special but also really tragic because she had her life cut short at such a young age in such a tragic way. And so, you know, going back and documenting from when she was a baby and a mom first adopted her to, you know, the day that she left home – And, you know, moved in with her husband and, you know, within less than a year, less than eight months, I think she was murdered. And so I thought that that was a rare opportunity to explore her life. And she made mistakes in life, but we all know what it's like to be eight nineteen and, you know, make mistakes. And usually those mistakes don't cost us our lives. And we have a chance to redo things and make amends and stuff. And Erin never got that chance because of the person that she, you know, got involved with.
1: And after reading about her, you know, growing up here in the Texas panhandle and we have a lot of horses and ranching and, and she was a horse lover. And, and so that kind of struck a chord with me because it seems like any person that I could just know here that's young and smart and has, you know, this bright future. And, you know, I know that obviously she's marrying a Marine and moving away and it's like, she, she grew up super fast. It felt like.
0: Yeah. That's the other part that there's several layers of things I wanted to explore in this book, but one of the things is that, you know, the Marine and the military life forces young people to grow up a lot sooner. And you and I both teach, I teach 18 year olds and 19 year olds, but I was teaching coming freshmen at ASU. And so I'm seeing these people who are just trying to figure out where they're going to go in their lives, and like still, you know, not completely mature, but you know, are getting there. And that's the same age as Aaron was, and a lot of the people who move to the Marine bases, or well, you know, the Army bases, or the Navy bases, you know, they are forced to grow up really, really fast. And the Marine, the Marines encourage. Well, all French the, the military, they don't encourage, but um, they, you know, Marines get extra benefits if they are married. They get better housing, and and um, they are able to be get better pay, to support their family. And so that encouraged Aaron and John to get married a little bit earlier than they had probably planned. And because of that, um, you know, Erin stepped in this situation where she's living extreme adult responsibilities, you know, uh, managing money, you know, living on her own in an apartment, navigating marriage, and and then getting pregnant at 19. And, you know, I just felt like there's this phenomenon that's happening there that I just, you know, no, with no judgment at all, just wanted to explore what life is like for those people who make those decisions to jump into that mature situation a lot sooner than people who go to college. And so that's one thing, like my book is Secrets of a Marine's Wife, and it's definitely focused on Marine wives, not on Marine life itself. It's um, way more focused on the lives of the women who choose to live with the Marines on base, you know, right when they're young and 19 years old around.
1: And I know you wrote something at the end of the book basically saying that Originally, you were not planning on writing about this. What ultimately led you to make that decision to do so?
0: Yeah, I just, I had a really hard time with it after I decided I wanted to write the story. And it just ended up being so, there's so so many parts of it were sad that at times I questioned if there was value here and that, you know, people would want to read it. But then I kept feeling like this is like a really meaningful story that I wanted to explore that, this was something that, if I didn't write this book, I don't know that anyone else would have and explored it the same way I did. So I struggle with that as a person, it just being a writer, it's, you know, it's hard. These stories are hard to write. True crime is hard to write. You know, at one point I was like, I do not want to write this book, but I kept being drawn to the story and wanting to know more. And then as I continued writing, you know, it, it came together and I was like, this story needs to be told. And I'm glad I did it.
1: Have you heard from Aaron's family? Have they read the book?
0: Oh, actually, I'm in contact with Laura Hevlin, Aaron's mom, on, on an almost weekly basis. So we're very um, really close since then. And uh, yeah, not only has she, she read the book, she promotes it online for me and has been a very big supporter. She read an early copy, which I never do um, because I just felt such a strong connection with her. She just sent me a baby present, and um, I just sent her pictures from New York from um, I, I just did Dr. Oz so we, are, we communicate all the time now I'm really close with her friend Jessie and I was super relieved that's another reason I'm proud of the book because her family was so supportive of the book and um, her mom says like, I, I, I don't want to put words into her mouth but she says she's very thankful to God that I'm the one who came around to be the one who wrote the book because I did it with, with such respect for her and some empathy for Aaron
1: I agree with that. I really, uh, I I love the book. I I oh, loved every too. second of it. So, so and and you just brought up that you're you're pregnant. This is your first yeah. child, correct? Yeah. Okay. And how does that? I don't I don't know the correct way to say this. It doesn't sound awful, but being a true crime writer, you have a very real view of the world. How is that affecting yeah. you being a new mother?
0: Yeah. I've used doing things, um, so I'm not, um, uh, yeah, uh, it really does, I, I do have, uh, I don't know that I wouldn't, though, if I didn't write through crime, because I'm just such a knowledge junkie anyway, and I would have looked up all this stuff anyway. <laughs> in some ways, it makes you worry more, because you know the realities of things, and, you know, like, percentages of, like, you know, the tragedies that can happen and all that stuff. Uh, in other ways, like, I'm you know, it's something that, like, I separate from my own life the same way that lawyers and police officers and detectives and stuff have to do on a daily basis. So I keep it pretty separate and, um, you know, it's something that I'm sure will influence my writing, but, um, you know, at the same time, I'll always keep that, like, distance. And People will tell me all the time I don't, when they meet me, that Wow, you don't seem like a true crime author or a true crime writer, or you know. And I'm like, what did you expect? <laughs> you know, someone <laughs> that's all like wearing black and all morbid. And yeah. I'm really actually <laughs> like, kind of a bubbly, happy person in real life, and so um, you know, I, I keep my own you know personality and stuff separate from um, what I do. If someone is wanting
1: to maybe start writing, not true crime or not, do you have any advice for people that? maybe want to, you know, publish that great idea that they've had for all of these years.
0: Yeah, um, and I help out a lot of people. I've, a lot of people who have wanted to write true crime or other types of books, I didn't have anyone to go to when I wanted to write. So I, you know, said to myself, if anyone, you know, comes to me after I'm successful, I will help them navigate it. So I would say, learn that this is a book business. You know, if you write a book and it could be the greatest book in the world, and no one reads it, it's like you're writing in your diary. So, you know, you have to, like, look at it from... You have to understand the publishing world and, like, what the types of books they publish. Um, I purposely got into true crime the way I did because it's easier to get published in nonfiction than fiction, and I wanted to get my foot in the door um, any way I could. And so I still might eventually publish fiction. That's, you know, something that's on my bucket list. But I knew... You know, I needed to, you know, get myself known in the writing world first. And so learn about the specifics of the business, what types of books they publish, read about how, you know, to get a book deal and then just write too. Like, you know, so many people, I think it's like a really high percentage of 80 or 90% of people who intend to write a book never actually finish writing that book. Just write, you know, you can always edit it later. Just start writing, putting your thoughts on the page. And you know, going through it, and you know, if you can do that, you can always fix it later. But it's much easier to work with what's on the page than it is to um, look at a blank page and still like, I want to write this book. So just get to writing. I respect anyone who takes the time and finishes the book. And so I just would tell them to work on it every single day. Set you know, set a schedule and be committed to it. How, it's very
1: rewarding when you finish. Well, yeah, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> I have no
1: doubt. I have a first draft and that's as far as I've gotten, but uh, that's great great advice on, on all levels. How much amount of research goes into doing true crime?
0: Oh man, that's that's a big big part of it. Reading um, you know, and reading um, police reports, it's attending trials, it's interviewing, you know, people involved, you know, reading indictments being really connected to the legal side. The research is all of it. You Like with my students, when they tell me like something like they're having writer's block or they don't know where to start, I'm like, well, I don't know that you've done enough research then because you don't have, if you don't have any material, it's hard to write. But if you've done your research, then it's easy to start. And so the research is, is all of it and all the fundamentals and the background of it. I would probably spend a couple years on each book, maybe, Less on some, more on others, but I, I spent a good, you know, six months researching, and I write at the same time, but um, worth of time. It's uh, a lot more, That's a lot different than, you know, some of the authors you'll interview that write fiction, you know, they can come up with an outline and, and do it from their head. I can't do anything until the material's been released, and I know the facts, and so that all ties into the research part.
1: So do you try to wait until the trial is over?
0: Until the, I don't wait. I write as it all comes out. Uh, and But I don't want books published before the trial is over. So they're all, you know, if they were published before the trial is over, they'd have a very short shelf life because new information would come about and it would make, you know, there wouldn't be an ending. The reason I like true crime is because it has a beginning, you know, the finding of the body, to digging into the background of the, the people, what brought them together, what led up to the day of the murder, to the arrest and finally the trial. And that's like the conclusive ending uh, to the story. So I wouldn't want to publish the, a book before the trial ended because it wouldn't be complete and it wouldn't share the whole story. And so I th- I'm sure that that that's
1: one of the reasons why I like them, because they have finality to them. Yeah. I mean, there could still be, you know... Uh, I'm sure obviously the defenses are going to come in and they're going to have some sort of appeals that go through. But but you're right. A lot of those appeals will take years and years as opposed to, you know, just wait for the trial to be done and we'll have some sort of closure by the end of the book, at least. So um, I think that's a good good plan for that. So who are your favorite authors? Who do you read the most?
0: I read a lot of varied stuff. I mean, I actually really am a fan of young adult fiction. I like like the Hunger Games and J.K. Rowling, that you know, Harry Potter and stuff. Um, those are my solid, you know, favorites of all times. Um, I read a lot of little mysteries too. Um, read a lot of weird stuff. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dan Wells and David Wong, who both write surrealistic fiction. Dan Wells writes a book series called "I'm Not a Serial Killer," about a teenage sociopath who um, ends up playing dam- demons. It's a weird book series. Um, as for true crimes, I read a a lot of, I've read a lot of Ann Um, like I said, Catherine Casey is one of my favorites. I'm friends with her on Facebook now these days, and she's a Texas writer that a lot of your uh, listeners would probably be interested in reading her stuff. She covers cases the same way I do it, actually even more thorough. The books are a little bit longer, but she covers only Texas cases and she sits with them and goes to the trials and does a very thorough job and is a very good writer yeah. So like I read a lot of different type of stuff. I just finished a book called the ghost writer by Alessandra Torres. So just like across the board, I've read a lot of Sandra Brown. <laughs> so different stuff.
1: I'm totally hijacking this, but I'm reading, have you read the rainbow Rowell, like carry on and fangirl? No, you should no, totally no, read American those. 30. You like Harry Potter. Yeah. They are really cool. So they're YA oh, cool. and they're kind of like hip and now. And if, Harry Potter maybe said the F word occasionally, you know, it's kind of a little bit edgier like YA, but, uh, and they deal with, um, gender issues and sexuality and things like that, that, you know, Harry Potter was a little squeaky clean, but, uh, yeah, yeah, all my friends, kids are reading it. So I was like, well, I'll try it. I'll, I'll give it a go. What's the best book you've read this year? Do you have a favorite?
0: Oh yeah. So I can't think of an author's name and I feel bad not saying it without the author's name, but it's Verity. Um, so if you look it up, um, the title is V-E-R-I-T-Y, and I just picked this up on a recommendation, and it's a really good mystery book about um, a young writer who gets hired as a ghostwriter for a successful author who she is now in a coma, and they need someone to finish her latest book. And so she takes on this assignment, and she moves into the house of the person, of the famous writer with her husband in the house. and It unfolds with, like, one chapter explaining, like, how she's putting together this book and then one chapter of the memoir that she finds of the author who's in a coma. And it just says, I read it in like day and a half. It was just so good. Mm. So there Look up the author's name.
1: (laughs) I will do that. And then do you have a favorite book of all time?
0: Um, Yeah. Harry Potter. I would say
1: that's a good one. We, you know, that was on the great American read last year and it did really well. Um, It is, you know, we always say it's like a cult series Everybody loves it, though, and it, it still somehow feels like, um, you know, like a cult movie would feel where it's very individual, yet everybody loves it. So uh, that's a great yeah, pick.
0: It's a, I did my baby room and Harry Potter themed and been to the Universal Studios Harry Potter world a couple times. I'm just like, I'm so in love with that world that she invented. And that would be my, like, ultimate goal one day. I don't even know if I'm talented enough to do it, but to create a world like that, that's what I... I say with my private goals is to be a world creator to create like an entire universe of things like the way that she was able to, and to bring all these characters to life and, you know, have them resonate with people in such a like strong degree. I don't think I'll ever be as talented to do that, but um, that would be a goal one day.
1: You never know. You never know. Yes. So what
0: are some of the things you like to do when you're not writing? I'm looking forward to the heating up right now. I'll be able to swim soon and this summer in Arizona you know, I have a good month and a half before I have the baby. I'm a big dog person. I walk my dogs every day. I'm a big superhero movie geek and I'm very looking forward to the new um, end game. You know, hang out with my husband a lot, read a lot, you know, hang out with friends, kind of a whole body. But I have a really good life and very happy living in my little corner of Phoenix, Arizona.
1: Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. I have wanted to talk to you for so long, and uh, yeah. it has been it's been wonderful. Shanna Hogan, her latest book is called "Secrets of a Marine's Wife: A True Story of Marriage, Obsession, and Murder." It is available now. Tell everybody where they can get your book.
0: Yeah, it's available on Amazon, um, anywhere books are sold, Barnes and Noble. Check it out wherever it's on um, sale right now on Amazon. It's available in audio, uh, uh, an audiobook, and it's available currently in hardcover in the fall. It will be available in paperback as well. So check it out. Um, uh, let me know what you think. Awesome.
1: Shanna, thank you so much. Thank you. Check Me Out is recorded in the FM 90 studios on the Washington Street campus of Amarillo College. Special thanks to Scotty Vanderford, Colin Lutz, and Stevie Brashears, who designed our really cool logo. Also, a huge thanks to The Max 7 for providing all of our music. Make sure you hit subscribe wherever you may be listening.